We on? All right. Good morning. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you all this morning. Nice, cool, I say nice, cool fall morning. I don't like the cold. No. I went to bed last night, and my wife had a blanket laid across the bed, an extra blanket, and I pushed it aside, and I didn't need it, folded it back. Somehow when I woke up this morning, it was covering me, so I, I don't know. I think this fell. Hold on. I still, being the tough guy that I am, told her I didn't need the blanket, so. Having some technical difficulties. Is that going to stay up? All right. Well, starting this week, we're going to be doing a kind of three-part uh, sub-series on the resurrection. We'll, we'll still be in 1 Corinthians. We'll still be doing our series that we've entitled A Hot Mess. Um, but each of the, these three sermons are going to be specifically addressing the topic of resurrection. And they're going to do it from um, three different angles. So this, this first section that we're going to go over today um, examines the topic of the resurrection of Jesus. The one that we'll talk about next week looks a, a little bit more broadly at the resurrection of the dead. And then in two weeks, um, we will look at uh, the resurrection body. Another way that we can look at these three sections is by their implications for us. So the first section deals with the historicity of the resurrection. Did it really happen? And since, since Paul does believe that it happened, we'll, we'll take a look at what impacts those had on his life. The second section deals with the implications of the resurrection for our faith. Why does it matter that Jesus was resurrected or that resurrection is a thing at all? And the third section is going to deal with what implication the resurrection has for our future if we believe. So here at Redeemer, we preach the gospel every Sunday. And I hope in your GCs and in your DNA groups that, that you are uh, hearing the gospel and speaking the gospel every time your group meets. I hope that throughout the week that you're, you're preaching the gospel both to yourself and to one another as you meet. But one thing that I want to be clear at, here, you are, every Sunday you are going to hear the gospel preached. Um, we are unapologetic about that. Everything that we preach will hinge on the person and work of Jesus. Every exhortation that we give will be firmly rooted in our faith in Jesus. We believe that we have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'll be honest, though. There are some passages in Scripture that it's easier to see how they connect to the person of Jesus than others. They, they all do point to him, but sometimes the connection can take a little bit of work to get to. It's not the case with our passage today. Uh, the passage today is one of the most explicit passages in Scripture that outlines what is of primary importance. In fact, Paul is going to tell us that this is of first importance. In other words, it's on the truth communicated in, in these verses that the rest of Scripture hinges. And this it's this message that makes Christianity unapologetically exclusive. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you have on t-shirts. It doesn't matter how many camps you've been to or even how many times that you've walked down an aisle or prayed a prayer. 
If you don't unequivocally believe what is in this passage, you aren't a Christian. This isn't being mean. It's just the definition of what a Christian is. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, there must be a clear understanding about an irreducible minimum. You cannot be a Christian at all unless you have that. And so this passage outlines for us Paul's understanding of this irreducible minimum. And Paul's going to make that clear for us here in these first two verses. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now there's a whole lot going on in these two verses. Essentially what he's saying is that he hasn't moved. He brought this gospel to them, and he has not moved away from that gospel message. Everything he has taught has been firmly rooted in this gospel. And he's reminding them, he's reminding the Corinthians that they actually received, they heard and they received this gospel that he's preaching. If you remember back in chapter 9, let me flip back there real quick. Paul said this, he said, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And then he said, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. They received this message, this gospel message from Paul. They heard it as Paul preached it, and they received it. And that's why he says in verse 1, the gospel I preached to you which you received. The message hasn't changed at all. But Paul has been hearing reports about the Corinthian church. And those reports have left him concerned. So look at the rest of this. He says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's some conditions here. You stand and are being saved if, if you hold fast to the word Paul preached, aka the gospel. Now this statement is going to work in, in two different directions, and we'll see them both today. In other words, the gospel is both the means and the motivation for you to stand, and it's the means and the motivation for you to be saved and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We talked in our Waging War series when we went through the book of Ephesians talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, we talked about standing firm. And here's what Ephesians 6 says about standing. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. It's, it's this gospel message, it's this truth of the gospel that allows us to stand firm. If we hold fast to the gospel, we will be saved. If we turn one step to the left or one step to the right, our source of strength is gone. The gospel is that important. You do not stand by your own strength. You do not stand by your own wisdom. You do not stand by your own willpower. You can't white-knuckle it enough to be able to stand firm. 
We stand in the strength of the gospel. Outside of the gospel, we crumble. Paul goes so far as to say that if we're not standing in the gospel, if we divert from the truth of the gospel, if we're trying to stand on something else, even some half-truth, we will have believed in vain. Now, what does he mean by that? I think a big part of this is found in how Paul talks about salvation. He says, by which you are being saved. Salvation is not a one-time event in your life. Salvation is an ongoing process. If your salvation, if your adherence to the gospel stops when you say that you believe, then your belief is in vain. What do I mean by that? Mental agreement with the message of the gospel without repentance is not saving faith. That's why James tells us that faith without works is dead. Faith without the works that accompany that faith is not real faith. Repentance is not just agreement with doctrine. It is a rejection of your former ways and an acceptance of a new way of life in Christ. It's a turning away from what you think and feel is right to what Jesus says is right. Repentance means change. But it doesn't mean immediate perfection either. It means a rejection of trying to be your own king and savior or, or of anything else being your king and savior and, and turning to Jesus as the one true king and savior. It means admitting that your old way of living was wrong and was not in line with the will of God and confessing that trusting in Jesus is the only way. That's what we mean when we talk about repentance. It's not just, yes, I agree with these statements. And the process of moving away from any trust or reliance on ourselves and instead moving toward faith in the wisdom of God is this idea of by which you are being saved. We also refer to it as sanctification. But before Paul really gets into any of that, he's going to start with a bit of history as he lays out his argument here in this passage. So let's, let's move on here in, in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, Paul just made a really important statement here. The, fact that, the fa facts that Paul laid out, he says, are of primary importance. So this is a big deal. Christ, the Messiah, namely Jesus, died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, since this is of primary importance, of first importance, you cannot be a Christian if you don't affirm these facts. But that's apparently what the Corinthians were trying to do. They were trying to argue that Jesus had not been physically resurrected from the dead. Paul's going to get into the implications of that next week. But for now, he's just going to say that the resurrection was a historical fact and that the Christian faith hinges on whether or not Jesus was resurrected from the dead. The bottom line is this. If you don't believe that Jesus died a physical death, you don't believe the gospel. If you don't believe that Jesus was buried, you don't believe the gospel. 
And if you don't believe that he physically was resurrected from the dead on the third day, you don't believe the gospel. And if you don't believe these things, you aren't a Christian. That may sound harsh and intolerant, but these are just the, the fundamental things that make a Christian a Christian. Like this, this is the definition. But this, this debate about the resurrection, it wasn't a new debate that started in Corinth. If you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Now, these were two competing Jewish sects. Uh, they both had a problem with Jesus. Neither one of them liked Jesus. I imagine that one of them rode on donkeys and the other probably rode on elephants, right? It's not historically accurate at all, but we'll, we'll go with it. Now, one of the defining beliefs of the Sadducees is that there was no resurrection from the dead. I don't understand the point of religion if there's no life after death. I don't understand why, why you try to be religious if, if you don't believe in anything after death. But we'll get to that next week. But, but in Mark 12, the Sadducees are, are trying to come and, and pin Jesus down and kind of corner him by asking some, some what they, they perceive to be really difficult questions. And they're asking about what happens in the resurrection. Now, it's not hard to identify a trap when somebody comes asking you about questions that, they, that you know that they don't believe, right? So Jesus didn't really need to tap into his supernatural ability to understand the thoughts of men, to kind of sniff this one out. The Sadducees were obviously trolling Jesus with these questions. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of the, the questions here, but I want to look at Jesus' response because it matters. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you need, know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he continued, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. So this idea of resurrection, it matters. The living God isn't the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Moses wasn't born until hundreds of years until after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. Yet he tells Moses he is, not was, but is their God, which means they died a physical death, but their souls did not die. And one day they would be raised again with a resurrection body. And we'll talk about the resurrection body in two weeks. Jesus doubled down on this when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Paul does a similar thing in these verses when he says, in accordance with the scripture. He says it twice. He says it in verse 3 and he says it in verse 4. So as if God in the flesh coming to earth, dying and being resurrected three days later wasn't proof enough for people, Scripture from hundreds and even thousands of years before the birth of Jesus testified to both his death and resurrection. As you read through the storyline of the Old Testament, you see it all over the place. It, the Old Testament is constantly pointing forward to Jesus and preparing us for his death and resurrection. You see it when Abraham trusted God that is, it is through Isaac, the son of the promise, that, that the promise would be fulfilled even as he is laying his son down on the altar and lifting a knife to end his life. 
The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead, that God would keep his promise, and that it would be through the line of Isaac that the promise would be fulfilled. But then, at the same time, as a substitutionary sacrifice, God instead provided a lamb that got his head caught in a crown of thorns, a foreshadowing to the crown of thorns that Jesus wore on his way to the cross. You see the portrayal of this in Jonah, when Jonah was thrown into the depths, only to be resurrected three days later. Jesus later referred to this as he told the religious leaders that the sign that they would receive that he is the Messiah is the sign of Jonah. You see it when Isaiah in chapter 53 talks about the suffering servant who was to be cut off from the land of the living, yet would see his offspring. It's all over scripture. So this matter of first importance isn't something that just arose after Jesus died. It's always been of primary importance. It has always been the center of history, even before it came to pass. That's why Paul can say of the gospel, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This gospel is not of man. It didn't originate with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not Paul's gospel or Peter's gospel or Apollos' gospel. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this gospel of the kingdom is not an afterthought. It's not something created by man. It is God's plan of redemption that is older than the foundations of the world. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that he received this gospel and then he passed it on to them. He's simply a messenger, as are all who communicate this gospel. And he reminds them that they, in fact, did receive this gospel. They didn't just hear it, they received it, but he's concerned because of these reports that he's hearing. He's concerned that the resurrection of Jesus is being questioned among them. And if the resurrection of Jesus is being questioned, then they're gravitating toward a different gospel that is no gospel at all. In other words, he's concerned about what Jesus described in the parable of the sower. Let me read that for us. It's in Matthew 13. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read Jesus' explanation of the parable. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So can you hear the echo of Paul's words? Listen again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
This is why we labor so hard to keep the gospel in front of us. This is why I hope that you labor hard in your own life and with your, with your friends, with your colleagues, with those that are around you to keep the gospel constantly in front of yourself and in, them, in front of them. We don't want anyone who has received this gospel to have believed in vain. I think for many of us, though, we've, we've grown really accustomed to hearing this. We, we hear the words of the gospel, and it's easy to have grown calloused to how strange all of this really is. Like, it's not normal or natural for somebody to come back to life, right? Like, just stop and think about that for a second. Jesus was dead, dead. The Romans were experts at this. They were professionals. They knew when someone was dead. They, they didn't make mistakes. And if them knowing that he was dead wasn't sufficient, they pierced his heart with a spear. I mean, he was, he was dead. They buried him in this tomb. They rolled the stone in front. He was dead. Based on all of our experiences, it can be easy to start to doubt whether this account is really true, right? I mean, it's easy enough for us to believe that Jesus died. That one's, that one's easy. We've, we know about that but that he actually physically came back to life? See, that goes beyond our experiential knowledge. And Paul knows that it does. But here's something I want to avoid. I want to avoid the idea of blind faith. And Paul um, is not going to ask the Corinthians to have some kind of blind faith. I know that idea floats around in Christian circles, that we just need to, to, to have faith, just believe, even, even if we don't understand, we just believe. The Bible doesn't really point us to that. Paul's not going to point the Corinthians to that. In fact, he's going to take this message of the gospel and he is going to put it on trial. He's going to take it to a courtroom. Let's look at that. In verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, so what Paul's doing here is he's giving a timeline. This isn't, this isn't just a list of everybody that he appeared to. It's, it's more of a timeline. There are going to be some people that are repeated throughout this list. So Cephas is the apostle Peter. He, he appeared first to the apostle Peter. Then he appeared to the 12, which included Peter, so his 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And and scholars aren't really sure when or where this happened, but but apparently this event was something that that people of that time knew about. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles again, possibly at his ascension. And finally, he appeared to Paul in a vision on the Damascus Road. Paul's doing something really specific here. You may notice that he left out women. He left out the women that first found the empty tomb, and he left out women altogether. Now, this isn't because he is a misogynist. This isn't because he doesn't trust women. This isn't, it really doesn't have anything to do with that at all. I said a second ago that he was putting the gospel on trial. In Roman law, the testimony of women was invalid. It meant nothing. A woman could could watch something happen. She could know the person who did it, And that would mean nothing. If if the only evidence was the testimony of a woman, a person could commit a crime and walk free. 
So Paul is taking that into account. It doesn't mean that he agrees with this practice. He does, it doesn't mean that he thinks that women's voices shouldn't be heard. It doesn't mean any of that. But he knows that in a court of law, in that culture, nobody would listen to the testimony of a woman. So he isn't even going to try to argue from that perspective here. But the testimony of 500 men, that's powerful. And the fact that most of them were still alive meant that anybody could go and ask them about their experience. They could go and try to poke holes in this story. But that's the point. I mean, 500 men, including many who had walked for extensive amounts of time with Jesus, they could testify and confirm that he had been resurrected from the dead. That's solid evidence. It would be for us today. And there's, there's really no case of mistaken identity here. There's no, case, there's no chance for some conspiracy in all of this. Blind faith isn't necessary. This is historical fact. And that's what Paul's telling the Corinthians. Go check it out yourself. Most of these are still alive. Go talk to them. Go ask them. He's telling the Corinthians that in order to nullify the resurrection, they're going to have to do a lot with all of this testimony, and we have to do the same. But do you ever stop for a moment and just think about this? Do you stop and think about this crazy historical account? Paul says it's of primary importance. This isn't just a stepping stone toward deeper theological truth. This is the essence of all theological truth. That Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth. He died for our sins, was buried, and was raised to life three days later. To be a Christian means to hold fast to this truth, not to just agree with it, but to stake your existence on it. Moving on. For I, Paul, am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. The apostles weren't exactly the top tier of Jewish society. You had some fishermen, you had a tax collector, you had Simon the Zealot, who was a Jewish nationalist, and he was among a group of people that was trying to incite an insurrection against the Roman Empire. And you also had a bunch of other guys who, the Bible doesn't really tell us what they did. Nobody really knows what they did. It obviously wasn't that glamorous or important. And then you get to Paul. Now, Paul was of a different, different tier of society. He was in the top tier in Philippians, Paul gives us his resume, and it is, it is impressive. He, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the, the cream of the crop. And yet the gospel did something to him. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The gospel knocked Paul flat. He was at the top of society. He was responsible for the death of Christians. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned while the people laid their coats at the feet of Saul, a.k.a. Paul. He had letters from the Jewish high priest to go personally arrest Christians 
in Damascus. And he was on his way to do that when he met Jesus in a miraculous way. And that meeting with Jesus shattered his perspective on everything. It sent him on a path that would remove everything the world says is important from him. Everything he had worked so hard to build up for himself had gone away. And look at this. He called it grace. Think about that for a second. He had his entire world completely flipped upside down, and he called it grace. Let me push on something for a minute. I've already said that most of us are really familiar with these ideas. But I think a lot of times we can tend to stop at the cross of Jesus, at his death. And what do I mean? We will wholeheartedly believe and praise Jesus for taking away our sin. Now, like the cross, our justification before God is a one-time event. We are justified once and for all, just as Christ died once and for all. We don't need to be justified over and over. But I think for, for many of us, this is where we can often stop. But the gospel doesn't stop there. It can't because Jesus came out of the grave. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. So there's the cross. But he doesn't stop there either. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus didn't just die he was resurrected from the dead. So we aren't just justified by his death. He lives in us by his resurrection. And that changes not just our final destination, but our lives now as well. There's, there's a common phrase that's been going around, and, and you may have heard it. Whenever somebody starts talking about caring for the poor, about racial justice, about the, the, the pandemic even, you hear people say, quote unquote, just preach the gospel. But here's the problem with that mentality. The things Paul has been talking about this entire letter, about sexual immorality, about partiality, about taking advantage of the poor, about prejudice, and on and on he goes, those things are gospel issues. Now, they're not gospel issues in the sense that doing the right things will save you but in the sense that being saved by the power of the gospel so transforms your life that you care about these things. They matter. You can't say you believe the gospel and at the same time live a life that's completely unchanged and looks nothing like Jesus. And that's what Paul means when he says, his grace toward me was not in vain. A life changed by the gospel is a testimony to the world around us that Jesus is better. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 5. He said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Contrary to popular belief, these verses were not written about America. They were written thousands of years before America existed, and they're not prophetically speaking to any nation state at all. Jesus is speaking to his church. 
Jesus is the light of the world, and when he is in us and we are in him, then we also shine with that light. That's what the gospel does. That's what the resurrection is about. And when that light is revealed in the public square in the form of a life that has been clearly changed by the gospel, the power of the gospel is on display for all to see. The gospel justifies us, it transforms us, it gives us life, it shines outward from us, and it attracts others to Jesus as they see both the effects of the gospel in our lives and hear the message of the gospel from our mouths. If you cut off any part of that, you're believing a truncated or partial gospel. And that is what you see Paul saying in these last verses. The gospel radically transformed his life. He met Jesus and his life could not remain unchanged. And it's that grace that he has received that compelled him to work. He saw himself as the chief of sinners. And because of the grace he received by which Jesus called him to himself as clean and righteous, he was compelled to devote himself to a life of making Jesus known. It wasn't so that he would receive grace that he worked hard, but because he received grace that he worked harder than anyone. Maybe this is, maybe this is where it's easy for us to get caught up. Maybe we don't understand or internalize the grace that we've received. I mean, sure, we all know that we're sinners, right? We've all messed up, but are we really that bad? We look at verses like Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's easy to agree with that, right? But yeah, I'm not God. I don't, I don't measure up to him. Sure, that, that's, that's an easy one. But I don't think we realize how grave an error that, that kind of thinking is. If you're trying to jump across a chasm and you fall short, it doesn't matter how close you get. Falling short will result in the same thing. And let's be real. The best long jumper in the world isn't any better off than any, anyone else if we're trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. I want us to feel the weight of this. Here's the point. You have already jumped. You've already left the edge, and you fall woefully short. We all do. None of us is going to make it to the other side. In fact, we've already all hit the bottom. Ephesians 2 tells us, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We've hit the bottom. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We have fallen. It's the whole point of the fall. Adam and Eve by eating the fruit, told God that they could make it to the other side by themselves. And every one of us that has come after them have followed them off the side of the cliff. We've all fallen short. Pay attention. Fallen. Not will fall, not are falling. We have fallen. It's a done deal. So what does all this have to do with grace? Jesus gave up his own life. He was buried and he was raised to life three days, three days later. And he breathes new life into us. He tells us to come out of the tomb with him. He invites us on mission with him. 
He doesn't invite us to just sit and wait in the tomb. He invites us to come out of the tomb and be his ambassadors to the world, to be witnesses of who he is and what he has done, to live a life modeled after his, empowered by the Spirit. We should be dead, but he calls us, his former enemies, to join us with him for his purposes. It's not because he needs anything out of us. It's not because he needs some kind of double agent. He doesn't need anything. He's God. He calls us to join us, to join him because he loves us. That is grace. Come out of the tomb. Arise, O sleeper. And that's what was driving Paul. That's why he doesn't care who's sharing the gospel as long as it's being shared. He wants this message out there. He didn't deserve it. He doesn't want any credit for sharing it. He just wants it to be received. If you're a Christian here today, do you understand the depths of the grace that was given to you? Does your life reflect gratitude for that grace that's been given to you? Does it reflect a desire that God's grace be given to others? If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, do you know that this grace is available for you as well? That, that Jesus died and was raised again to give you life as well? Let me finish that sentence from Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That is what the resurrection does. It means that we can be justified and redeemed and reconciled to Christ. It means that we have the promise of new life. It means that Jesus has conquered the grave and Jesus is alive today. Do you receive this gospel? Do you believe this gospel? Do you believe this message of life? Will you accept this gift today? It truly is amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much for this passage, for the words that you spoke through Paul. Father, I pray like Paul that we would be knocked flat, that our worlds would be shattered when we understand the depths of your grace, the depth of your love for us, that Jesus came and he died and he was buried and yet he was raised to life on the third day and offers us that new life with him. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just wait around looking at the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back, but that we would live a life that's empowered by the Spirit. That our lives would be so transformed that people would see our lives, would see our good works, and they would praise you. Because there's no way that these things are of us. It's by the grace of God. Father, it is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.